Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. A couple of days ago, I drove by a sign by the side of the road that read, Wanted HVAC Repair We Will Train. All those years wondering about the skills gap, wondering what federal and state governments had to do to make sure workers were future-proof, and all it took was a very, very tight labor market. We need you. We will train. This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Brendan Greeley in Dallas, drinking Dr. Pepper at a conference organized by the Federal Reserve Banks of Dallas, Atlanta, and Richmond. It is titled Technology Enabled Disruption. I got to sit down with Robert Kaplan. He's the president of the Dallas Fed. We talked about what fracking has done to the price of oil and why companies in the oil patch are consolidating. He also assured me that he is not watching equity markets. Rather, he is watching credit spreads, and he gets worried when they widen. But I started with my story about HVAC repair. I wanted to know whether the Fed can help nudge companies to keep paying for training by making employees hard to get. Here's Robert Kaplan. I've been in this job now for, I guess, more than three and a half years and started talking about this subject around three years ago. And uh, I've always said, and I, I believe it then and I believe it uh, more now, most of the, the skills training has got to be done locally. And here's why. Worker mobility is historically low. We just, at our technology-enabled disruption conference, just heard from two community college presidents and the president of Texas Women's College. And I know them both, for obvious reasons, very, very well. And what they go out and do now, and the, the world-class junior college president of today does this, goes out and interviews businesses in their community. High schools are doing this too, increasingly. Workforce development boards increasingly are doing this and that are backward integrating at the curriculum they need, they need to offer. And what they're also finding is companies, if they're big enough, are training their own people, uh, if it makes sense, but often they're not big enough. And that's why junior colleges and high schools have to pool resources, but they can only offer the class if they have confidence that there's a there's a end market for their graduates, and often companies are willing to contribute to and help pay for these centers. So my own view, I've I always started saying about three years ago, if you're waiting for the federal government to solve this problem, you can stop. They're not going to. It's going to have to be solved by local officials, local nonprofits, local high schools and junior colleges. And and what we try to do at the Dallas Fed is convene groups of those various constituencies to help be a catalyst to start these programs. So I think I think the one thing that has changed in three years with a tighter and tighter and tighter labor force, I've noticed more and more companies are telling me that they're doing the retraining of their existing workers that are getting displaced from one kind of job to another. They're going from a call center and they're trying to retrain them. But I'd say the, the reason we're having a hard time nationally on retraining and skills training is if you don't have good local leadership, 
it may not get done very well. And so I've noticed it's very uneven across the United States. And so this is a task that different Fed banks have taken on for themselves. Uh, this is something that you're doing here in Dallas. Uh, the Philadelphia Fed has thought a lot about community development and what yes. has to happen to yes, match local job providers uh, with uh, local skills trainers. Um, but it also seems like there's something else the Fed can do, which is its traditional mandate of creating a very tight job market like this one. Uh, Janet Yellen, I think three years ago, she didn't suggest that that we run the economy hot, but she did she did muse aloud that there might be some benefits to a very tight labor market. And it seems like that's what we're seeing right now. Is the Fed learning that one way to create all of these great interventions, uh, local interventions by companies and community colleges working together is to create that demand for skilled labor. So our first job at the Fed is full employment, full employment in a sustainable basis and price stability. And I think one of the things that's that we've learned over the last few years is we can run a tighter labor force than we may have thought uh, without undue price pressures. One that's of a the, really big deal. Yes. So one of the side benefits is what you just talked about. It can't be our primary objective, but one of the one of the benefits, I believe, of being able to run with a lower unemployment rate and maintaining price stability is we can get more people into the workforce. And what the studies show is what's happening is not just our people joining the workforce, they're staying in longer. They're not leaving the workforce, and the longer people stay in, particularly underrepresented groups, previously underrepresented groups, they're more likely to get skill training. They're more likely to develop uh, proficiencies that will keep in the jobs market for a long time. And that's a big deal because it means it, it grows capacity of our workforce, which in an aging society, which we are with slowing workforce growth, we've got to make use as to extend humanly possible of our of our human capital. Do we have to think differently about how we define full employment? Because we used to think binary has a job or not. And then you could say, all right, well, we have low employment, but we also have uh, increasing workforce participation. And then you could say, okay, we've got higher workforce participation, we've got low unemployment, uh, and we've got good wage growth. It seems like there's a pyramid of things that we might want to achieve under this broad broad category, full employment, that used to just be the U3 number keeping it below 5%. The fact is there are two forces, opposing forces at work when you talk about uh, full employment and price stability. And I I like to talk about them separately. One is the cyclical elements. A tighter labor force used to mean, and it still does mean more wage pressure, but it meant uh, potential, if you let it go hot enough, you could have price instability. I think one of the reasons we have the luxury of running hotter as we do is a second factor, which is the structural forces. And the structural forces are what this conference is about uh, today and tomorrow. Technology, technology-enabled disruption, and to some extent globalization. What I mean by that is uh, technology is replacing people. Uh, businesses have far less pricing power because of distributed technology among consumers. And what's happening is you get a tighter labor force. It may or may not as likely lead to wage pressure and certainly may not lead to price pressure. And it also, though, means that the skills of our workforce probably need are changing as we speak. And that uh, and every, every company I talked to and every company today talked about the fact that they're needing to reskill their workforce. A lot of jobs, particularly lower end, aren't going to exist. 
and they get get eliminated. But there needs to be more technology, technology-enabled jobs, which need more training. So what we're learning here is uh, there's a lot of elements to um, to unemployment, to full employment, and to price stability. Uh, but the only caution I'd give is we learn these lessons and we're able to achieve some of these other objectives. Inflation's not dead. It's being talked about sometimes if, as if it's, gee, it's just, it's just not there. It is there, uh, but these structural forces are muting it. And so we're still going to have to watch uh, as these cyclical forces build and, the, and we'll see after these structural forces unfold, we have to, we'll have to be vigilant but in the meantime, I think we've got the ability to achieve a number of other objectives, particularly getting underrepresented groups back into the workforce and lower levels of educational attainment into the workforce so maybe they can get more skilled as the longer they stay in. I think we have the ability to achieve those objectives. But, but I think we still have to watch these other elements. So you say uh, inflation's not dead. Um, no. You've talked before about the value of patience. You gave a speech earlier this year about that. And, 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 if, and if I understood the speech correctly, you're basically talking about two opposing trends. You have the cyclical trend, um, which should be pushing uh, both wages and inflation up. And you have this structural trend, which is pushing them down, right? So then um, we have some kind of balance right now. Um, and you can see that in the inflation data. What is it that might throw that balance off? So here are some of the things I'm watching. Number one, the labor force is tightening. And when I talk to businesses, you know, they'd like to pass some of the increased labor costs on to customers, but it's very uneven as to whether they can. So what may happen is we have a whole number of companies out there that the, the, the markets are giving very substantial valuations to, even though they are currently not profitable, and there isn't even a near-term prospect of being profitable. Uh, I think part of that is a function of low rates and low cost of capital. Uh, but I've learned, having been in the markets for the last 30 years plus, what the market wants to own today and value at a certain level, it, it, it can sometimes change its mind. We may get to a point where the market starts demanding of those companies that they start showing some prospect of profitability. If that were to happen, maybe those technology companies, when they, especially when they're doing bundling at little or no gross margin, they might feel more pressure to price a little more fully themselves to try to create a little more profitability because maybe they're going to be under more shareholder pressure. You heard this morning, we heard from the oil and gas companies, which used to be just incentivized drill, 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 production, production, production. Now, all of a sudden, the capital providers are saying, no, we don't want you to uh, grow production. We want to focus on profitability. Sometimes the market, even with these platform companies that right now have these very big market caps and are putting this pricing pressure on, this, the markets may change. And if they start demanding a little more pricing and profitability from these companies, that'll change this dynamic a little bit in ways it's hard for me to predict, but I'm watching it. So you think inflation could snap and what would snap it would be a quick change in market sentiment. Yeah, so I, my base case is I don't think inflation, I've said this many times, I don't think inflation is running away from us. But again, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be vigilant. And I guess my message is for myself and my team and my colleagues is the future may not necessarily look like the recent past. So I know we've been running, and I'm very cognizant of the fact we've been running behind our 2% target for most of the last eight or nine years. But I think it's this dynamic at work 
I think the only advice I'd give is vigilance, yes, because I think the Phillips curve looks flat, but I don't know that the Phillips curve is dead. In the lingo, it may just be the intercept is lower on the curve. And uh, and so I just want to watch it and not take it for granted. The other thing I want to watch is as we run hotter, you have excesses and imbalances build. What, what's an example of an excess? Rates are very low. It's very creative to leverage, buy, uh, borrow, to buy back your stock and do other things, which ultimately we may have to deal with in the next downturn and may make it more painful. So I think we need to watch that too. I, uh, I just failed. My whole goal was to get through this whole conversation without making you say the words Phillips curve. And I, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I failed. Um, you know, but what you're talking about right now runs parallel to something that we heard this morning uh, in the conference, uh, which is uh, Craig Boyan, uh, the president of H.E. Butts, it's a Texas um, grocer, said something really interesting which is that he's definitely not a Luddite. He really talked about how they're using data in his business, yeah. how they're making sure that they compete with all the del- grocery delivery companies. Yeah, they're cutting edge. Um, and yet, he said, capital markets are rewarding companies that don't make any money. And that's destroying companies that do make money. And I had never heard anyone put it that way. But he did lay the responsibility for that a bit at the feet of the Fed. Mm -hmm. How do you respond? So uh, one of the nice things about this job is I get to talk to about 30 CEOs a month. I do rotating calls. Craig's one of the ones I talk to every month. And so I've been talking to him now for years. And what he's referring to, uh, and I'm careful not to mention companies, so I won't, but I'll mention industries. If you're a taxi cab driver in New York City, and you, re- you drove a yellow cab, I don't need to tell you, you, you know, your income has declined, the value of the medallion you owned has gone down substantially. And I wouldn't say your industry has been ruined, but your ability to make a living has been severely impeded because of a technology-enabled new service by one or more companies that basically uh, isn't making money and isn't even generating on a contribution basis. It's questionable whether it's generating for incremental services a profit. Uh, but it's still there's still over 100 billion of market cap in those services. That's one example. In the grocery store business, he's dealing with bu- platform companies that bundle, that basically sell some of the things he sells, but at no gross margin because it drives traffic for other things they sell that do have a gross margin. And I think the concern is, if that were sustainable, that would be good for the consumer. Obviously, businesses like Craig's have to adapt to it. But the question is, will it be sustainable? Um, and and will, um, will this ultimately uh, create uh, sustainable jobs that can be here not just today or six months from now, but over the next several years that improve the quality of uh, life and the living standard of, of companies here? And that's where the jury's out on that. And yes, low interest rates and low cost of capital has made it possible for those companies to be valued at very high levels. You know, we saw this, I lived through the, the late 90s, where we also saw the same phenomenon. It just didn't go on for that long. This, this phenomenon has gone on for longer. If the late 90s process had gone on for longer, that might have also eventually affected uh, traditional companies more. Uh, and most traditional companies, by the way, are trying to respond to it by themselves aggressively investing in technology and trying to disrupt themselves. The good news is I think companies will adapt to it. I think the consumers are well served by it. The part that it's been painful uh, for is the workforce 
and it's hev- the outcomes, economic outcomes, are skewed by educational attainment. And this is why you see income inequality and wealth, more wealth inequality. And I think technology is amplifying those trends. If the problem or the challenge of uh, capital markets rewarding companies that have no returns on capital, if that challenge is cyclical, then it'll fix itself. If it's structural, it won't. As uh, you might not be surprised, I don't know the answer to how it will turn out. My guess is, my experience is, and I can only draw from my own life, and I've also studied you know, equity markets and markets generally before I was born, just you know, read Benjamin Graham, all those things. Uh, my guess is, I think in hindsight, this will turn out to be a cyclical phenomena, and uh, we'll just have to see what the implications of that are. One of the things you've talked about in your speeches a lot as well is um, how to measure inflation. Um, unsurprisingly, you prefer the Dallas trimmed mean approach. Um, why, why is it important? There are a lot of different ways to measure inflation. The trends in all of them are moving the same way. So why would it matter how we measure it when trend-wise we're either seeing a flattening of inflation or, or, or a decrease? Yeah. We're, so, so the reason I like using the Dallas trimmed mean uh, is – uh, I've, I can think through – I've only been involved with the Fed for three and a half, three and three quarters years. But during some of those periods, if I go back to 2016, during 2017, there was all – in those years, there was one or two items, cell phone pricing. This is going back two, two yeah, and a half years ago. It seems like a lot longer. But, you know, cell phone prices were very weak, but it lasted – a few months, we looked through it and said that appears to be transitory. Uh, most recently, I noticed financial services pricing recently has been weak. Do I think that's persistent? I doubt it. Uh, apparel pricing has been weak. So the reason I like the Dallas Trim Mean is I'm trying to figure out the sustainable level of inflation in the economy. And uh, you know, if you have these one-off transitory items, and Xing those out gives us a better read. And our read is... Uh, to your point, inflation over the last few years has been slowly building. Over the last year or so, it's been flattish, but it's still the Dallas trim mean is still showing uh, that inflation is firming or at least going sideways right now. Uh, and so uh, there's the transitory elements. The Dallas trim mean helps me with that. The structural headwinds of technology, technology, and able disruption, there's nothing transitory, in my opinion, about that. That's with us to stay. It might even be intensifying. And for me, that helps explain why, even though the labor market keeps getting tighter and tighter, the Dallas trip mean is going sideways. That's not what we would have expected even from the trim mean. But it's worth reminding people, and I remind myself, that the trim mean is running a little below 2%. And so what does that mean to me? It may turn out that those that say inflation is weaker, they may, I may turn out to agree with them. I'm just not ready to yet in that I, I just want to be a little more patient. And the other thing I'm very hesitant to do, if we're at full employment or potentially past it, and if GDP growth, although slower than last year, is still solid, I, for one, am hesitant to add more accommodation to uh, the economy. In other words, those who have said Would you, maybe we should cut rates to deal with the I'm, – I'm hesitant to add more accommodation, which my fear is might create even more excesses, imbalances in the economy, which we will look back a couple of years from now and say, boy, those are now very troubling to deal with. And so if we weren't at full employment – I might have a different view. 
Or if economic growth were weaker than what I see it as, I might have a different view. But if it turns out we're at full, past full employment, which I think we are, and we're growing in excess of 2%, i.e. at or above potential, I think the Fed shouldn't be adding accommodation. I wouldn't be raising rates either. I think we should be staying with our policy setting until, for me, until I see a compelling reason to move either up or down. I don't see that compelling reason yet. If we're at full employment, are we at peak wage growth? My guess is wage growth from all, all my contacts and everything we see is probably still building. And oh, by the way, we just published a paper, I guess a month ago uh, at Dallas, that reminds people that 3.2 average wage growth is size-weighted. In other words, if you're a bigger earner, your wage growth gets weighted more in that average than if you're a lower earner. It's almost like the S&P 500 is, uh, is cap-weighted. Okay, if you take away the size weighting, we actually think wage growth is meaningfully higher than 3.2%. So we think there's actually pretty good evidence of wage growth. And yeah, could it get stronger? Yes, it could get stronger. Everything I see uh, in, in going everywhere in this district and talking to my colleagues around the table is people are having a harder and harder time finding workers, and they're, they're needing to pay. It's particularly pronounced for skilled workers, and it's particularly pronounced at the low end, and I mean 12 to $15. But I think, it's, I think that's still building. Well, that's interesting to hear because, I mean, the question has always been, uh, we're no longer where we were two years ago when we were at 2.5, 2.6% growth. Um, but even when you, uh, when you weight it, as you say, if you look at that measure back over the last cycle, wage growth at the peak of that cycle in 2007 was above four. And we're not there yet either. And I guess that's the question for me that's in the back of my mind is, one, is it worth thinking about how to get it back above four? And again, we also, the other adjustment we make here, and we've done this, uh, we've written a few things on this. You have to look at what the inflation rate was at each of those periods. And uh, we think inflation adjusted, uh, again, we think there's healthier wage growth than it may appear. Hmm. And but But again... Everything I hear from my contacts, what I'm seeing, it would surprise me not to see wage growth continue to firm, unless there's some change in the dynamics of the labor market. But I don't see that happening right now. One of the, uh, I'm going to take a hard turn here. One of the fascinating things that the Dallas Fed has been doing recently, um, last several years, is producing these surveys uh, from the oil fields, which has given us a ton of interesting information. Um, when I look at the industrial production numbers over the last 10 years, you really see a divergence in um, mining and manufacturing that we didn't have before. Um, and it turns out that if you look at uh, capital expenditures, that divergence is there too. You can find it in any number of different measures uh, where mining and manufacturing used to move together and they don't anymore. A lot of that is happening right here in your district, in the Permian Basin. Mm -hmm. um, are we looking at two separate economies in America, one which swings with the global price of oil and one which swings with more traditional uh, domestic questions? Or are the two of those still linked? I think you've got to look sector by sector. So the, the fact that, um, that those two sectors, their capex was more similar historically. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's coincidence, but some of it I think is probably coincidental in that my experience is you've got to look industry by industry. Again, what's happening globally in that industry? What's happening in technology in that industry? What's happening with technological innovation in that industry? And uh, I think what's happened is a lot of traditional manufacturing in this country 
has, um, there's logistics, supply chain arrangements, which have been a big part of that. There's been globalization, which, is, which has been a part of it. But I think most manufacturing firms I talk to are very concerned about disruption. They're just not sure their business model that they have today is going gonna, is gonna to be sustainable five years from now. And those qu- uncertainty, if anything, is going up. And they're a little hesitant to make big CapEx spending on that. Whereas in the energy business, there's also been an enormous change even within energy in that used to be 10 years ago, most major oil companies were spending a lot on these long life projects, offshore drilling. They're really not anymore. Uh, they're now spending the bulk of their CapEx heavily on shale, okay? And by the way, they're very wedded to keeping their dividends and return of capital. And so what you're really seeing is a concentration of CapEx heavily in shale because it's more bite size, it's more nimble, uh, and we've got prolific resources here. So uh, I think you see a lot of individual trends uh, that are uh, affecting what you're seeing in CapEx in these various industries. But even shale is not immune from disruption and capital discipline, and they're feeling it right now. Uh, and this is why you're seeing more merger activity. And, and I would say this across the board. How are businesses responding? Yes, they're investing more in technology, but scale has never been more important. And this is why you're seeing a record level of merger ta- activity, including in shale. Yeah, this is uh, it's one of my favorite things about the, 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 the research the Dallas Fed puts out about uh, the oil industry is that it includes quotes. Journalists love quotes. One of them, <laughs> is that, one of them from the most recent report is that it's, it's a, quote, consolidation party. Yes, and here's why. So break-evens are going up, and so you're starting to hear now— This is—sorry, we have some non-experts in the audience. This yeah. is, this is the, the, the price at which it still makes sense to either, right. uh, to either pump from your existing well or dig a new one. That's right. And so when I hear, gee, the price of oil is in the 60s and your break-even is 37, you must be making a lot of money. Well, they explained to me, well, not so fast. The decline curve in shale— is 70, 80% in year one. So if I'm gonna maintain production, I have to keep drilling new wells. And so uh, the PNL impact of continued drilling upon drilling upon drilling upon drilling, it isn't as attractive a PNL as I might have thought, and it takes a lot of cash flow. And then you're hearing companies talk about, we think it's better to have a quote unquote new term, drilling program. And so what does that mean? Assemble bigger plots of acreage, uh, uh, more wells with every pad, more horizontal, all the all the uh, more cutting edge technology. Uh, I know a number of drillers. They they have fewer people on every site, and they're doing their um, all. They're running their rigs from a, uh, a conference room here in Dallas, where there's a bunch of folks that look like they work on rigs that are sitting in a nice office building. The point of it is technology and the characteristics of the industry are causing people to consolidate uh, because if you're going to have to drill upon drill upon drill upon drill to maintain just the same level of production, it's expensive and people are realizing even to do that, I need scale. And this is an industry which is very entrepreneurial industry and this classic wildcatter that we think of. But uh, as the people have said to me in this industry, you're either a buyer or a seller today. But if you stand pat where you are, you're going to be in a dangerous place. Well, yeah. And it's also, again, here's another quote from the most recent oil report, which is that it, it takes deep pockets. 
And that's, that's, a, that's a shift. I mean, three years ago, five years ago, the companies out there in the oil patch were, uh, you know, using high-yield debt. Uh, they, they were profoundly different companies. Um, and they can no longer expect uh, the sort of hope and promise of, of capital markets to sustain them. They need to be bigger companies. They're losing access to capital, right. And they're hearing from their shareholders, I can tell you that who are, they're changing their criteria for their compensation and everything else. The other thing, the lesson that was painfully learned in 2014 and 15 and some of 16 was if you're not over leveraged, this is a cyclical industry, but you'll be able to be there in the good times, the bad. But if you're over leveraged, you're gonna go out of business. And this is one industry where a number of firms that failed in the downturn because they had too much debt. Well, let's talk about that cyclicality because um, if you go back and you look at a couple of different measures, you look at uh, rig counts, um, you look at sort of ex- expectation of employee hires, um, you end up with the same curve, which is it goes sharply up until about 2015. Yeah. And then you have the price war with the Saudis yeah. um, and it collapses. Yeah. And then it comes back up starting about a year and a half ago. Right. But then it's plateaued. And so you have a gentle decline in rig counts over the last several months, but not pronounced. And it seems to be moving sideways. So are we looking at an industry? And you have a lot more drilled but uncompleted wells, which for this year, just for your listeners, um, a lot of the production this year will be to complete wells that have already been drilled. If there isn't more CapEx next year, we're, they're going to have a hard time maintaining production. So he, here's what's changed is Saudi Arabia went through the experiment with uh, trying to see if they could uh, put a damper on shale production. Yes. And I think out of that experience, they don't want to do that again. Uh, And the other thing that we're learning, global growth continues. Global demand continues to grow at about 1.3 or 1.5 million barrels a day. And uh, it's becoming clear that shale, as prolific as it is, will be unlikely, in our view, to keep up with global demand growth. Okay, so then Saudis have about, it's estimated, maybe $2 billion a day of excess capacity, but they're already using some of it to uh, offset some of these uh, waivers, or some of the uh, sanctions, I should say, for Iran. And there isn't a lot of excess capacity in the world. And again, as I said before, there aren't these long-life projects that are coming online. And so... You've got a situation where, with everything I said, prices are stable, but it's still our view at the Dallas Fed, if you asked us to forecast out the next five years, we're as, as we're more likely to be in a global undersupply situation over the next five years is oversupply. Well, it does also seem like oil analysis has changed profoundly in the last three years. Uh, you know, when you and I talked about this in 2015, we were talking about supply and demand in very traditional ways still. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking about the research uh, that came out of the Dallas Fed from uh, Michael Plant and uh, Kumal Patel. This is this week, right. which was fascinating. And it basically, I want to make sure I get this right, but it said that the forward price of oil is more or less exactly what the break-even data that the Dallas Fed is producing uh, says it's going to be that those two measures are moving together. That's new. So the, the numbers aren't the same, but the trend they're pointing out is the same. Now, they also will be very quick to say, we're not yet ready to say it's causal, okay? But it makes sense. And, and just for people listening, what it means is when people drill more, there's shortages of people, there's shortages of sand, water, and so price costs go up. And that tends to be coincident with prices being higher because people drill more when prices are higher. And then when prices go down, people drill less. 
And so there's less demands on the resources to drill, which means you can buy those resources cheaper and break-evens go down. And I think that paper that they just did kind of just explains that relationship. And uh, the one other variable in the equation is other sources of supply, and then the big one is what's global demand. And I think we talk about China and emerging markets a lot. If China and emerging markets continue to grow, that also will be a factor that is going to bolster the price of oil. And I think that's a distinct likelihood. So that's not quite what I took away from the paper. That's interesting. What I took away from the paper was that it looks like oil is going to move sideways for a while. I think I put it differently. If prices stay elevated and there continues to be tremendous pressure to drill more and more and more, break-evens are likely to be higher, not lower. And that relationship is one of the reasons why you're going to see more merger activity in that companies are realizing that. And even though they were thinking, if we thought five years ago, man, if you had a price of oil in the 60s, we're going to be making a lot of money, they're starting to realize they need more scale and more investment in technology to make this business work from an economics point of view. You know, you have a challenge, though, in this district, um, which is that shale has driven so much economic activity right here in Texas, um, principally here in Texas. It's affected wages. It's affected all sorts of things. It's capital expenditures. There's nothing but good economic things coming from that. Yep. At the same time, we've talked today at this conference about the long-term consequences of climate change and how the Fed needs to be aware of that. Right. Um, how do you square that in an era when, you know, the chairman of the Federal Reserve sent Congress a letter saying, well, yeah, we do have to think about this. It is something that the Fed needs to be aware of. And you may notice from my talks, and I'm writing something right now, I'm increasingly talking about climate change. And the reason I'm doing it is um, it's becoming a bigger and bigger issue in the, just in this district. It's an issue in the nation and the world, but even in this district. And, and so, by the way, just I'll just mention, and this is a, may surprise people, energy, uh, or in, it's referred to as mining in the SEC code, was as high as 14 or 15 percent of the state's GDP back in 14, and during the Great Recession, it got as high as 15 percent. Today, it's eight and a half percent. So, why is that happening? Diversification and growth in the state, migration of people and firms to the state is allowing the state to diversify to some extent, to a great extent, away from energy. But the other problem we have is with climate change, hurricanes. Hurricane Harvey, our estimate is it cost the state, it was damage of $80 billion. Uh, Floods, drought, uh, a lot of the nation's energy infrastructure is along the Gulf. The ports are a critical gateway for the United States. And so there's a very active discussion in this state how to uh, encourage more investment in wind. We're the largest wind-producing state in the country, solar, and how to protect the state from the implications of climate change. Uh, there's a lot of discussion out here, might surprise people, of the National Climate Estimate, which forecasts that the severity and frequency of these severe weather events is going to go up. Average temperatures are going to go up. So uh, it's unusual to talk to an energy executive in the state who doesn't, isn't actively thinking about investing in alternatives. And it's unusual to talk to a large energy company that doesn't have a greenhouse gas emissions program. And if you're a supplier to an energy business, it's hard to get business without it. The reason, if something's a tail event, if it happens occasionally, if it starts to happen with more frequency, it, it starts to have a fundamental impact on financial stability 
and the economic viability of certain regions of the state. So you'll, we have to analyze it and talk about it. So if we take that to its natural conclusion, uh, the letter from Chairman Powell said, uh, you know, the Fed draws a distinction between events and vulnerabilities. Right. And that it sounds from what you're saying that it may be possible for the Fed, the whole system, to think of climate change as a financial vulnerability and not individual events that can happen. What happens when that shift in thinking occurs? Well, we're our, at the Dallas Fed, just so you know, I, I've been careful because it's a politically sensitive issue, so how we talk about it, but in the same way I talk about immigration and I'm doing it in a sensitive way. But uh, we're already there uh, for, on a financial stability point of view for insurance companies and, and those type of institutions. It's got to be a consideration now because sporadic events can affect them. From an economic point of view, we're talking a lot about it in Houston along the Gulf because the extent that there is greater frequency and severity, we need to make multi-billion dollar investments in the state. And a lot of the state leaders come to us for advice, and I've been, we've been strongly encouraging that these are high ROE investments and they are important to the financial sustainability and economic growth of the state and migration to the state. And so we're watching this very carefully. It, it may not be during our lifetimes that these become more frequent, but they're eventually, if you believe published research by National Climate Estimate and others, uh, they're going to become more frequent and they're extremely damaging when they occur. Um, you know, Joel Moker, uh, the, the economist at Northwestern, today got up and asked a question at the conference here about the amount of capital that's going to take that if there are going to be uh, adjustments, um, that it's just going to take a ton of wealth. Mm -hmm. um, and if you go to China, you go, anyone who's been to Beijing and Shanghai, I think the estimates there, it's in the trillions of dollars. And yet, even if we take climate change and put it to one side, mm -hmm. for the sake of argument, there's nobody in America who disagrees with the idea that we need uh, more investment in infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And yet, we can't do it. We cannot bring ourselves politically to spend this money, to tap this wealth, to make changes that we all agree that we need. Now, if you add climate change back into that, you have an even greater need. But I don't know where I get the where I, what I would use to get the confidence that we would make that. Some of it will be done by the private sector. And by the way, it's an enormous business opportunity. And we lead the world. Our ex, we have great expertise in this country on uh, – on, uh, uh, machines and other uh, technology to do this. I, I happened to co-chair the sustainability effort for Harvard University when I was there, and we had a greenhouse gas emissions goal that uh, over 10 years, and we spent a substantial amount of money. Uh, and I don't think we're unusual. Most, most big companies out there are spending money right now on reducing their carbon footprint. Many public institutions are. Uh, many cities in this country are taking steps to address this. Uh, I won't get into the political aspects of what's being done federally, but I would say the corporate sector is well on its way here to making a number of these investments. And globally, we're going to have to make substantial investments. And I actually don't see it as much as a threat as actually probably a substantial, maybe more than substantial business opportunity uh, to create jobs and playing to the strengths of this country. You've listed before, uh, you know, these longer-term structural headwinds. You know, one theme over this conversation and over uh, your speeches for the last year or so have been this this tension between what's happening within the cycle and what's happening structurally. Um, 
we've talked about the first two slower workforce growth. Um, you know, the, the, the need to to train workers still, even in this tight market. The productivity issue, we'd call it. Okay. Um, the third one you listed is high levels of debt, uh, mm-hmm. including federal debt. Mm-hmm. Particularly when it's very likely that there will need to be a federal spend, mm-hmm. either for infrastructure or for infrastructure for mitigating climate change. We could we could say either or both. How do we know when it is that we've reached a level where federal debt is too high? We keep predicting that it will be mm-hmm. too high, and yet it does not seem to have the capital markets effects that we would predict. So, and also in our work here, we differentiate in talking about this between increasing your debt to make investments. Infrastructure investment would be an example where you have a long-term payoff that should sustainably improve your ability to grow and increasing your debt leverage to, to fund current spending, which we're afraid just creates a bump and then you get back down to trend growth. But we think investments in education, infrastructure, other things should be categorized differently. But the reality is the reason people are not alarmed by this right now is the dollar is the world's reserve currency. And we rely very heavily on that. And we've said at the Dallas Fed, and I've said, I think it's a mistake to assume that will go on forever. And we, we, we should start moderating our debt growth. We can do that by doing things to grow faster, but it means we've got to grow the workforce, improve our capability of our people, uh, infrastructure spending. And yes, we may have to look at entitlement reform and other actions. It's not going to be one thing. It's going to be a combination of things. And we think we would be well served in this country to not kick the can down the road on this to our kids and our grandkids. So we're talking about two different kinds. Uh, this is really interesting because you're talking about two different kinds of debt. Um, so yeah. we, it, it is impossible to say you know, 77 or 85 or whatever percent uh, debt to GDP ratio is bad because the question is is not that percentage level. It's, you know, what did we buy with that? Well, so, I, I mean, I've read all the studies of uh, uh, Rogoff and sure. others, but the truth is I, I don't know the answer. I know present value of unfunded entitlements is now up to $59 trillion. Okay, that's present value of unfunded entitlements, and that's going north, and debt held by the public is 77% of GDP. Our judgment here, and there's no bright line, is as unlikely, this path is unlikely to be sustainable. And so it's not that we can't continue to grow government debt and obligations, it's the rate at which we're growing them. We're growing them faster than we're growing the economy. We doubt that that's going to be sustainable. So then there was the last part of you know these structural uh, challenges that you listed, which was uh, corporate debt. We well, talk- and, and corporate debt, I actually haven't I don't see that quite as a headwind, but on the debt issue generally, I flag government debt as unlikely to be sustainable. We flag flag corporate debt, and I wrote something specifically on it, yeah. just to say it's not a systemic risk. We had a systemic risk 10 years ago in that the lenders, the lenders were over leveraged. Today, it's the borrowers. The lenders, we think, are in much better shape. The borrowers are more highly leveraged. We don't think it's a crisis. I don't think it's a crisis, and I think it could be manageable, but we want to flag it. Because if we have a downturn, it means a higher percentage of corporate cash flow is going to have to go to servicing debt instead of CapEx and people. That's going to amplify a slowdown. And I want to flag it. And I particularly want to flag it when times are good and that for those companies out there that have a chance to deleverage or or term out bank debt into term debt where they get a little more breathing room, I think they might be well served to do that. You know, you wrote in a speech, the economy is becoming more interest rate sensitive. Right. Um, And what I wondered when I read that was, is the Fed now stuck protecting overlevered non-financials? If the consequences are going to be so severe 
uh, or so much more severe uh, um, if for, for, for change in regime, is the Fed stuck where it is now? So my opinion, no. And, and so let me, let me mention how I see the effect of high levels of corporate debt. Um, and I talked about this a little bit in the essay I wrote on this subject. A lot, of, a lot of people have commented about the Fed watching the markets. Let me just be very clear on what I'm watching. I'm not focused specifically on the stock market. I am focused on credit conditions and credit availability because I know this is why I watch whether the curve's inverted or not. I think it could affect credit availability because I know if credit availability is hampered, it's going to lead to a slowing economy. What comes with a high level of corporate debt it would be my guess that in a downturn or stress situation, you may see credit spreads widen a little faster than they would otherwise because you've got so much debt out there. If credit spreads widen, that's what I'm watching specifically because then financial conditions are tightening. It means credit creation may be slowed. And ultimately, experience has shown that has led to a slowing in the economy. And so I would say the thing that does create a watch out for me is if you have a high level of debt in the economy and if you maybe don't have as good a liquidity two-way markets as we have had historically, uh, you're just going to be a little bit more sensitive in a downturn that spreads could widen faster and to a greater extent than we've seen historically. And that would certainly reach my radar screen. So this fall, when everybody wondered, is the Fed watching equity markets? It wasn't what I was watching. What were you watching? So I'll, I'll distinguish between – we had a sell-off in the first quarter of 2018, but credit spreads did not widen out materially. And at the time – and I said this publicly, this, at this point, does not have a material effect on my views on the path of monetary policy. What I saw in the fall that worried me is, one, global growth decelerating. Number two, economically sensitive industries were slowing, like housing. But third, credit spreads were widening and financial conditions were widening. We went through the month of December without a single high-yield issuance. That told me we're on the early stages maybe of a credit crunch. And that, I think, is something in monetary policy I'm going to take into account. And those three reasons were, including uh, the, the financial conditions, were a big reason why I advocated at the beginning of January that we should pause. What specifically are the spreads that you watch? Uh, I, watch I watch everything. I watch investment-grade spreads, high-yield spreads, uh, basically cost of debt, and also how much uh, availability of debt. So when I mentioned I saw, you know, there were lack of issuance in the month of December, uh, and I talk extensively to people in the corporate world as well as in financial markets, it, it showed me we were, if we let that go on indefinitely, we could uh, have a much more severe tightening, which in turn might lead to a slowing in the economy. That's what I'm watching much more uh, when we talk about financial conditions and markets. That's in specific what I'm watching. So we talked about aging demographics, the productivity issue, which we tie to education uh, and technology. Uh, we talked about government. Debt. And then the fourth is globalization. And I mention it in that the world's becoming more global. And globalization is being uh, cited as the reason today for a lot of job disruption in the United States. And our comment on that, we do a lot of work on trade and immigration here, is based on our research. We think if your job is being disrupted in the United States, 15 years ago, it may well have been due to globalization, not today. Today, it's far more likely to be due to technology and technology-enabled disruption. And globalization is likely to be an opportunity 
to grow faster. And trade, uh, potentially immigration reform will be opportunities in an aging society that's got a lot of debt. And if we see globalization as a threat and we get that diagnosis wrong, we're liable to make policy decisions that cause us to grow more slowly. Yeah, but it's, it ends up being a political challenge, and not an, or not just an economic, but also a political challenge, which is that we, we now have much better data on the consequences of the China shock. Um, and it makes sense that we are no longer living the China shock. Wages are going up in China. Their economy is changing. We supply them in different ways. That, that whole equation is different from what it was in 2005, 2006. However, there were people in communities who were losing their manufacturing plants who were being told it'll all work out in the end. So you can't go back and fix that anger, even if the problem has changed. So let me give you a little more context. The reason we raise this globalization issue is not vis-a-vis China, and that we've actually said, and I've said consistently, the, the deficit with China is a final goods deficit. You also have intellectual property issues and technology transfer. We think that's a fight th- that makes sense. What we have been saying is, if you're going to fight that fight, segment your other trading relationships and prioritize them differently. And we would have put at the top of the list, get North America shored up, which we now have. Because you draw the distinction between final goods, where we buy their products, right. and intermediate goods, right. which is where we're actually trading production chains back and forth and we take, across the border and of Canada we think and we improve U.S. competitiveness with those relationships and take share from Asia. So I think we're getting there. But the reason I talked about a lot more two years ago is we're saying, let's get resolved Mexico and to a lesser extent Canada so that we can focus on leveling the playing field with places which are not helping necessarily U.S. competitiveness in the same, to the same extent. So victory, in a way, would be a presidential debate where a candidate, either candidate, doesn't matter, at least draws the distinction between intermediate and final goods. I think that would be what we'd be wise to segment these, these trade relationships in that way. Yes. Okay. Robert Kaplan, thank you. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. Please email us, alphachat at ft.com, for any reason at all. Also, though, the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas has its own smoker, and they serve brisket in the cafeteria on Thursdays. I thought you should know. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Brien, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.